0: Okay, so we just finished listening to the first half of the deep state intel about uh, the children, where they get them, who who gets them, how they deal with it, and what we're going to do to stop it. So we're on the second half.
1: who are still frozen in time in their growth processes mentally because of traumas that occurred as young kids as young adults and we have to go in there and as warriors hold the line occupy and try to get these people to some stable condition and then Rebuild the world after we've cleared these scumbags out. and Sent a bunch of them to Gitmo and a bunch more of them to meet their maker. Kill.
2: definitely. So you're him. talking about um, China being involved in this? Uh, have a lot of context that I they
0: already my own took care too,
2: of this. That a lot, you know, China. They have that one this child um, initiative where you can only have one ago. child. And they have a daughter you know, I this. think a lot of those daughters but unfortunately get trafficked out
3: care.
2: so they seem, they seem to be going to a lot of different um, countries Those, uh, those unfortunately those children and uh, America, Australia, you name it they're going to uh, a lot of different countries how are they able to get them there You know, without people notice, knowing, because I talk about this all the time, but people are like well I don't see it, they're not reporting and how is it happening
1: well, there's a lot of a lot of mechanisms you know let me start for a second on the other side of the world you know uh, uh, they had this scam um, uh, you know when, when, when Benghazi happened um, one of the things that I wrote about and talked about behind the scenes uh, pretty extensively was that uh, Benghazi was where we were doing uh, in that area around there was multiple training camps for the various groups that were getting ready to go into Syria to do this, conduct the civil war. And they were getting all of Gaddafi's, um, uh, storerooms, uh, uh, for all of the arms they could find, repackaging them, certifying that they were good. They had three warehouses there that the Saudis were running in Misrata and in, uh, Benghazi. And they were, uh, repackaging those arms and sending them up to, uh, U.N. refugee camps in uh, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. And they were really just arms depots, uh, uh, staging points for the munitions and the fighters going into Syria to break up Syria so they could uh, fractionalize Syria, run a pipeline from Saudi Arabia across Iraq and uh, Syria and up through Turkey to Europe to set up um, uh, this next 50 to 100 years of uh, owning Europe as a customer for their oil and gas projects out of uh, Saudi Arabia. And then the money from that going to their friends and buddies. Remember, Saudi Arabia, and I'm getting to the kids, just bear with me for a second. Saudi Arabia uh, is run by, you know, really the money project is Aramco. What's Aramco? Arab American Oil Corporation. Okay, well, we know who the Arab is. Who's the American side? with Standard Oil. So you really have an insider ploy uh, in in the case of Standard Oil, Rockefellers uh, and their club, Rothschilds on the banking side, running Saudi Arabia like a branch office. Uh, Where did our director of the CIA under the Obama administration uh, come from in in the most recent history prior to becoming director of CIA? He was station chief in Saudi Arabia. That was Brennan. So he was in that corporate pocket. Forget the Arabs. Who's behind the Arabs? Who set up Arab American Oil Corporation and made that a branch office? It was people above the Saudis. It was these money families using that as a branch office, and then this black operation, the CIA, using it as a, as a place to get money to do things that they want to do. So what is it that was going on when they were tearing apart Syria internally with this supposed civil war by Syrians. Well, they weren't Syrians doing the civil war. They were fighters that were being trained in Libya. And they were coming together to go cause a civil war in Syria. It wasn't really a true, honest in the civil war. You had Iranians, generals, Israelis, Israelis, you had everybody in there picking different positions. So McCain bringing in and slapping these CIA guys that are that supposedly are... Uh, freedom fighters in Syria
2: And they're all in CIA's payroll Born here in the U.S. Go look at those pictures So the long and short of it is Yeah, let, let, me, let me back you up I, yeah. uh, I'll back you up on that Because I, I thought McCain was like this He was a hero to me, you know you know, Navy guy, pilot, and all that kind of stuff uh, Once I started looking at him, not so much But I was part of a detail um, Pakistan, he was flying through To go to, you know, um, Syria And uh, I can look at someone And know if they're evil so I looked at him, and I'm like, oh, my God, he is evil to the core, you know? And then I started doing more research. And then my buddies die in Benghazi. I was one of the first guys to go in and recover some stuff in Benghazi. And everybody there is, like, they're trafficking weapons to Syria from here. They had a Syrian hit team come in here and hit those guys. I'm like, whoa. So, yeah, I mean, you're 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 amazing. You're your knowledge not. I just, it's incredible. Well,
1: uh, let me just, before I go where I was going to go on Syria, let me just add one thing. I, I had to go to um, deal with McCain on something. I was up on the hill. <laughs> and uh, so I get to his offices, and uh, uh, he knows I'm coming. And I get there. And they have these huge, heavy walls and doors and, you know, the dark wood, and it's you know, very historic, and the office staff outside. And so you get there, and, you know, it's very formal and everything else. And so it's the first time I've ever been to McCain's office, and I need to bring him up to speed on something. And uh, so I get there, and the secretary's very nice and uh, has me sit down, and, and he'll be with me in just a minute. And in the next room, through those heavy, heavy walls, I hear yelling and ranting and screaming that was like almost blood curdling. Like somebody inside there is about to get uh, you know in an eye fight. And I'm like you know kind of shocked. And the girls are just carrying on like it's just normal. You know they're you know not even like they don't even hear anything. And and literally about five minutes goes by, and then. Uh, Two people come out—a uh, Republican and a Democrat—that were on the committee that uh, was related to why I was there, and uh, they looked like they just, you know, just ashen, you know, embarrassed that somebody even saw them coming out that way and went down the hall. I get in there, and he was—it was like you flipped a light switch. A different person, it's just as nice as could be. Sit down. We're getting through it. Uh, he turned around, turned back to me. And went off on me, and was just living. Hey, I'm just there to tell you what's happening and why it's happening this way, and I'm not, you know, don't kill the messenger type thing. I, I was. He might as well have been foaming at the mouth. And I, I was shocked that somebody would be in a position of authority or power that was that cooked, baked. Um, I, I, I was just shocked. And that was back in the uh, uh, early 90s. So um, I
2: never... You're yeah, bringing up the... Uh, he was uh, seen with al-Baghdadi. They had that photo of him. Now, when I was in Iraq, one of the last times I told everybody there that these bases are going to be... I was in an area, um, CIA base, and I said, this area is probably... Because I have this intuitive ability. And uh, anyway, I said guys, this area is going to get probably shut down, and you guys are going to be in danger here pretty soon. I said, I don't know why we're not going after al-Baghdadi, but he's going to be our biggest problem. And then sure enough, you know, uh, within a year or so, then that base, you know, folded and so forth. So John McCain was, you know, giving arms and setting up stuff for those guys.
1: Well, all that money that was going in there, that was, you know, CIA operation to get that stuff in there because they were – behind, uh, you know, President Obama uh, was behind this Mideast thing, and the people behind Obama were really calling the shots. Uh, Obama was just a bit part player. Um, his first foreign travel was to Egypt, and then he laid out this uh, foreign policy for the Mideast and essentially laid the groundwork for Muslim Brotherhood to move into control in uh, Egypt and around the region. Uh, money was coming from his buddies in, in Qatar. Uh, a lot of that money for the arms wasn't just uh, Saudi money, money it was Qatari money uh, for starting this whole thing in Egypt, or in uh, Syria. So uh, all of those events, I mean, before uh, Benghazi happened, um, uh, we had anticipated within kind of the community that I deal with, that we were expecting uh, something in Libya. We, either, we were anticipating it. I had people that were there um, uh, working in Libya and had been uh, for over you know, five, six years uh, very heavily involved there in what was going on because, remember, Gaddafi was actually providing information to us after 9-11. He was cooperating. He got rid of uh, all of his stuff and even gave us the roadmap Pakistan on the uh, nuclear material being uh, spread around the world, and so little known to everybody, and it was Safe Gaddafi that um, had told his dad, you know, he didn't want to get bombed like happened under President Reagan, and uh, uh, when Gadda- Gaddafi got shut down for the uh, supporting terrorist activity in, in Europe, and we lost a few uh, personnel, so uh, Safe led the way with his dad. To um, not be against America, you know, pick a side, and they started cooperating. Gave us the names of everybody, the locations, uh, the stuff with stuff coming out of uh, uh, Pakistan et cetera. and etc. Uh, and uh, was cooperating with us. uh, uh director of CIA at the time was on the phone to uh, Libyan intelligence people several times a day oftentimes with Gaddafi himself, he was assisting us. So when, when this whole push to take out Gaddafi with Hillary Clinton at the helm and Obama in there happened, they were taking out somebody that had become an ally behind the scenes, a very, very strong ally, I might add, of giving us real
2: intelligence, not bullshit. That's why that, they were so shocked. They, they didn't realize what they were doing. It was just like Egypt uh, when they thought that they were, you know, getting freedoms and stuff like that and then they people turned around and saw the mother Brotherhood was like worse than ever so they pushed him out i was in libya after that and i remember talk, talking to people there and they're like you know we we made a mistake just like they did in egypt it says we we got rid of you know actually probably someone who was really good and, and they had the like highest rate of uh, education i saw awesome. they have high right uh, hotels they had like um Roman ruins there, they're like pristine. That place was ready to rock. It would have been amazing. And then after they took him out, then the terrorists started coming in and started blocking everything down. So all those people that had their freedoms under his, under Qaddafi's reign, they they went super far south. I mean, they lost everything. Well, in fact, I'm going to get back to the Syrians. Break the country up and divvy it up to uh, all the Europeans that got involved, we saw the map you know who had what section of uh of libya it was not good well uh, i'll get back to the
1: syrians and, and the kids issue in a minute and we'll just enjoy the trip around the around the area there you know uh, uh the tripletonians uh which is the folks that were the business people and the people that actually were running uh libya uh all through the gaddafi period and like that um one of the things that people don't know, you mentioned the ruins, uh, the um,
0: Syria has uh, a lot of minister grounds.
1: of antiquities in Libya uh, was actually he's a brilliant man. He's uh, friends with all the guys over in Egypt, and up in Turkey. Uh, and by the way, Turkey and Libya were close enough that he didn't even use a passport. It's like it used to be here in the U.S. with Canada, where you just go back and forth across the border. You didn't need you know. Driver's license. Nobody cared. Uh, that's the way it was up to Turkey across the Mediterranean between Libya and Turkey. But um, the ruins between those various countries is just unbelievable. But Libya has the best preserved ancient ruins from multiple civilizations of, of over the you know eons of anybody in the world. Um, just phenomenal. And so the Ministry of Antiquities there. Um He organized Libyan kids, high schoolers and college students. They call uh, they call um, students, guys up to you know, even to their late 30s, they referred to them as students in Libya because they're continuously learning, but whatever. But so they, they call these guys students. But they went out to all these ancient sites and they were defending the ancient sites during the Libyan, Uh, civil war to preserve those sites so they wouldn't get blown up and destroyed by these uh, foreign mercenaries or used as a battleground and so the minister of antiquities' son was at one of these locations with uh, doing some work when one of these groups came in and wanted to use an area uh, for a staging area at a large amphitheater He, he took a round in the arm and um it was very very serious, and so uh, they did what they could in in the area. But he was he got angry and was going to get the lost. And so, uh, through a couple of of acquaintances, uh, we were able to get him up to uh, Corfu, and uh, he got treated there and saved his arm. Uh, the mm-hmm. Minister of Antiquities uh, continued even in the midst of all that and continued to organize these young Libyans to preserve those ruins for the whole world or someday out in the future. And uh, I'll just tell you one other thing. Nobody's ever heard this in public, but I'm going to tell you for your audience. There's an aircraft there called the Lady Be Good. Have you ever heard of that uh, aircraft? No. Lady Be Good is the aircraft that all the movies, uh, uh, starting with The Flight of the Phoenix is based on and what it was it was a world war ii b-24 liberator uh, uh four engine or twin engine plane i believe it was um and so i uh, shouldn't engine and what the deal was is that these liberators the b-24s uh were flying out of uh northern libya and up into europe into italy and, and uh uh doing bombing runs. So in 1943, this Liberator came over from the United States uh, to augment uh, uh, some of the bombers were already present. They were ferrying them over. They had uh, uh, female crews that would actually fly them. Uh, very difficult in those days because the planes couldn't go that far before they had to land, so they'd have to land out the Azores and continue on. It was very dicey. They didn't have GPS and everything else. And so it was a very complex thing to get an aircraft from uh, the U.S. over there. This one was built in Kansas. And so it gets there. Its very first bombing run, the crew goes out. And because they're the trainees, everybody else goes first. And you could have sand that would come up and blow through the area. And if the planes got into the sand... Uh, on takeoff, a lot of times they'd have to come back and land and they'd be staggered out and then you have radio silence, you're not communicating plane to plane, and so you'd follow the guys in front of you, and you'd have a a flight plan and everything else well, the two planes taking off in front of this uh, green crew um, both of them got ingested sand on takeoff and had to return and land and couldn't continue with the mission, so this crew is trying to catch up to the rest of the bomb group and lost track of them, never found them. Mm. Went up over where their target was. It was weathered in. They couldn't bomb indiscriminately. Its primary and secondary targets were not able to be bombed because of weather. So they flew back and then dropped their bombs uh, over the uh, Mediterranean. By then it was night because this whole thing took all... You know, they left it uh, before dawn, and then they were coming back <clears throat> after dark. Unfortunately, um, as they were coming back, they couldn't find the airport. They they uh, based on their um, you know you're you're just going off of uh, wind, uh, stars, uh, uh, celestial navigation <clears throat> uh, instruments, and they didn't get it quite right. They radioed and asked the base there Tripoli for um, a uh, confirmation that they were over the base to descend down through the clouds in land. And the base was under a threat. They believed that there was German night fighters in the area that were listening for any radio communications in order to uh, take out the base. So they never responded. They heard the aircraft, uh, uh, the navigator uh, asking for um, heading information and verify that they were on point, and never got a response. And they were using low energy transmissions so that they wouldn't be broadcasting all the way back to Europe where they were at. So they were they were actually heard. They were obviously in the right place. Long and short of it is that <clears throat> they thought they the navigator recalculated and thought they were further back than they were, or he second guessed his judgment, thought they were still back over the Mediterranean further back than they were, thought they had a headwind and and, uh, miscalculated. So they overflew the base and continued out into the Sahara, 180 miles. And when they ran out of fuel, uh, they were almost out of fuel At the moment that they ran out of fuel, on the top of that B-24, it had um, um, a life raft. So they ejected the life raft out of the aircraft, out of the roof of the aircraft, and then the crew bailed. The aircraft out of fuel um, continued to glide, and it glided 15 miles away from where they bailed out. The crew all survived the landing, and the reason we know this is because we have the diary of the navigator. The crew was in the Sahara Desert, one of the hottest, most desolate places on planet Earth, and realized they thought they were bailing out into the Mediterranean, and surprise, surprise, they land in the middle of the hardest it, the desert out there, it's like asphalt. It's as flat. Oh, as You God. might as well go to Bonneville. It's that flat and smooth and hard. And uh, Bonneville, the, the racetrack out there, I, which I love. Um, so anyway, uh, they start walking head north trying to get back to where they get to. Well, when they get to the edge of the sand dunes, where it's rock hard just like asphalt when you get to the sand dunes it's um almost impossible to cross you know how it is there you can't you can't just walk through it and um you're toast all they had was a little bit of water they thought they were going into the ocean um they all died out there we have found everyone's body but one um and uh you know, because there's nowhere to bury them as hard as, you know, so their bodies turned up over, over the, you know, the next decade or so, uh, the oil crews and like that out there. So that happened in 1943. In 1959, Dakota Drilling Operations uh, has a plane that's flying over the Sahara Desert, and uh, they're doing mapping for oil exploration and uh, they're flying over the desert and they see an aircraft down on the desert floor it looked like it just landed there they radio back to Tripoli and tell yeah, most people don't know this that the air base in Tripoli in the 50s and 60s the US Air Force Base there and I, life, I can't think of the name right this second I've said it a million times um, it'll come back to me uh, uh, Wheelus Wheelis Air Force Base uh, is the largest air force base outside of the continental U.S. in the world. Um, up until uh, we went into Vietnam and Tan Sanuk became the largest air base, up until that point in time, Wheeler's Air Force Base was the biggest U.S. Uh, operation, uh, military uh, air force base outside of the continental U.S. So they radio back to Wheelis, uh Dakota drilling aircraft that they found their airplane, and it's and here's where it's at. And the Air Force Base says, what are you talking about? We're not missing an airplane. Well, we're looking right at it. It's obviously just landed. And they're like, well, we don't have an aircraft missing. Well, it's got U.S. aircraft. Uh, 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 Army Air Force markings. Well, we're not an Army Air Force anymore. We're a United States Air Force (laughs) because we changed that in 47. So my friend is uh, the uh, base reclamation officer at Wheatless Air Force Base in 1959. And he gets tasked to go out with an air crew find out what's going on with this aircraft they fly out from wheelers a few days later and they land because you can land anywhere out there. there's this one huge parking lot they ran right at the aircraft pull up right next to it get out and the aircraft had belly landed in intact it was broken in the back a little bit but the aircraft is laying there on the desert floor looks totally intact My friend was the guy because he had to decommission the aircraft. It had weapons, uh, machine guns, everything. So they had to decommission it Mm. so that it wasn't, so there was nothing the rebels and people around there could take and hurt anybody with. So uh, here's a couple little things. Number one, it still had 25 gallons of water inside the water tank, inside the aircraft. If the oh, guys had known it they could have got them through and got the water. Survive. Every gun on the airplane oh, fired first time when they hit the trigger to test the guns. All wow. of the gauges, they pulled stuff out of the aircraft and brought it back they so they could survived. look at the survival, how well instruments and other things survived all that time in the desert in one of the hottest places on, on planet earth and then they officially decommissioned the aircraft that's the lady be good uh and my guy uh, i have photographs that he gave me uh, yes. of from the aircraft from that day that they spent that they spent the night at the aircraft slept underneath the wing and that's the original story for uh, what we know as The Flight of the Phoenix and another uh, and several other movies that kind of fit that scenario of aircraft abandoned out there. Now here's the part that nobody knows. So the Minister of Antiquities because of stuff that we did to help him out because of his son the aircraft had been moved because it was being stripped down by everybody out there. It still has value to us and uh, the U.S. Air Force wanted to have it. There's actually a some beautiful art and parts from the airplane that are displayed, uh, here in the U S, uh, at various places in memory of that crew. And, uh, but the aircraft was moved to, uh, Aden air force base, uh, Libya, um, out towards the coast at one point in time. And, uh, then it was moved to a police station. Um, <laughs> literally on the coast because they were actually trying to work a deal to get it here to the u.s but they wanted uh, certain you know uh, guarantees etc well the problem is the aircraft was perfectly preserved out in the desert when they moved it to the coast salt water salt air damages the aircraft and so it was starting to be damaged so i told them, look you've got to do something while we're getting this sorted out it's got to go Inland or it won't there won't be anything to get because the solitaire will, will destroy it, and it's already in trouble. So where does he have it moved? He has, this is, nobody knows this. This is almost like you know super highly classified top secret, but I'm gonna tell your audience. He has it moved and placed on top of General Patton's secret military operations facility that he used when he was working from North Africa going against Rommel. And it's sitting there right now. And I have the plans for how to demine that facility that was mined in World War II that's sitting right underneath the Lady Be Good right now. Oh, my God. Because they mined it because they wanted to go back there in case they had to. Can you imagine walking into Patton's underground operations facility that's still the way it was in 1943?
2: You know, And that's, that's the amazing thing about that area because uh, if it gets covered up with sand, like there's a whole port facility there in <laughs> Libya that the Romans built that they eventually had to abandon. Uh, Because the emperor, you know, when Rome fell, um, the emperor was from Libya. So he built a whole new, brand new port facility, homes, everything. It is still there in pristine condition. Unbelievable.
1: Well, and, you know, there's there's all sorts of locations inside of uh, Tripoli where they tell everybody locally, do not... ...go into these underground locations because the Germans mined them and they've got all sorts of weapons caches and like that. But uh, if you go in there, you're probably going to die because it's going to blow up because they mined it. And, of course, over time, those munitions get more and more unstable. You try to touch or move them, they you've you got to think twice about playing with that stuff. So there's some really cool, interesting stuff still waiting to be played with there, but it might
2: be a while before we get to it. <laughs> That was a nice detour, thank you That's you're, you're a wealth of information on a lot of different levels Thank you Well,
1: and so let me just So I don't want to lose your listeners I had a point I wanted to make back when we were talking about McCain and Syria and all that Yeah, exactly You know, this, this whole scam That was done by the Obama administration You know, part of the thing what, what got Gaddafi in the end Was We said that we were putting An air cap over Libya so Gaddafi couldn't protect his positions. And then it was just a matter of time before Gaddafi got wiped out. And, uh, the French, uh, in fact, uh, there's all sorts of stuff I could tell you about the guys that were, I had, I had one of my guys that was in, uh, um, Toronto, Canada on the runway, aircraft running with, uh, Canada's, uh, uh UN ambassador, I believe it was, um, going down, they were going to go down to uh, Libya, they're actually going next door uh, to pick up Gaddafi and his family and take him to an island location that had already been agreed upon and he was going to go into exile and they had, had negotiated it out and Gaddafi had agreed to it uh, the family was going to get picked up they had a bunch of buses and they were they were going down there nobody knew quite where Gaddafi was at in the meantime while they were doing this negotiation and changing their mind they're holding this aircraft with guys uh, the do what you do waiting to go in there to handle the security to move the family to this island they wouldn't let them they wouldn't give them takeoff clearance to leave the runway there in Toronto and they sat there and sat there and sat there and it was like five or six hours and then they finally told them to stand down and in the interim what they had done is they got Gaddafi cornered and then the French Air Force went in there and and, uh, uh, bombed the area a little bit to stop their rigs and then allowed the uh, insurgents to come in and then the the uh, atrocities that happened to Gaddafi and all that so that's how a guy that was trying to be an ally that I'm not you know I'm not making any apologies for Gaddafi he was the problem child and he was a a kook and he was a a problem but then again on the other side um, he was more stable than what they certainly got after the fact and here he was ready to go and and what's Libya been ever since Um, and we had a part in that you know the, the saying pretty to look at pretty to hold but if you break it It sold America, America's State Department, our government, that Obama group, uh, that Brennan group, and a bunch of generals and McCain uh, uh, associates and CIA people played a huge part in the destruction of Libya and the deaths of a lot of people that uh, you can disagree with Libya and all that but uh, something horrible happened there and then the looting of all of their munitions and Gaddafi's uh, gold you know he had uh, uh, about 350 billion worth of gold that he wanted to use to do to create a gold-backed dinar for Africa to rebuild Africa and that's what they were really going after and by the way you know where that was going why was Hillary so excited we came we saw he died because um what was going on was that uh, they looted that gold uh hillary's brother was running this gold mining operation in haiti and uh, that was based out of canada with the alliances and everything else what were they going to do now uh, if there was gold in haiti that had got it a long time ago they were going to sift in this gold uh out of the Gaddafi stuff make it legitimate and uh, go make a killing over the next few decades sifting in this uh, stolen gold so they could be super wealthy with the real gold as they collapsed the dollar and went to their bitcoin currency and all those that, that was a scam if hillary had won and so uh you know all of that was really just a great big huge bank robbery these people that were supposedly there to help the world and re-change it and that was a bank robbery and then they were trying to lock in their positions for the uh, own Europe as a customer for uh, Mideast oil coming out of Saudi Arabia with their group and their black operation it was a big money thing and so at the end of the day we the American people have some guilt because it was people that we allowed to get in office under false pretenses uh, and control our country and control our military and control our state department and control our intelligence agencies to go do evil in the world and then just let me let me be a little long-winded here mike but let me finish this thought that i had from a few minutes ago you were mentioning uh we got into the kids in saudi arabia i started this whole thing there what actually happened in syria five million refugees escaping Syria, escaping the civil war that wasn't Syrians doing the civil war. Remember, Syria had more Christians in it than anywhere else with the Alawites and the and Alawite. This was really an attack on the Christians here in Syria. They may not be quite what people here and some of the churches here in the West think of or whatever, but these are people that have a Christian belief, same as Lebanon had before uh, uh, the uh, Haman party, Hamas and, and uh, uh Hezbollah got in there. Uh, these were Christians in the yeah. And so uh, when you smashed and broke Syria, five million refugees went in to the north, up into Turkey and across Europe. And um, when you have refugees like that, you know that a lot of parents die and you have children left over. And they're very vulnerable those kids ended up in trafficking in places all over the place and one of those places is right there in libya they now have a slave bazaar that's been reopened in libya since uh, gaddafi was killed and that slave bazaar is going today now my guy when he lived there in the late 50s early 60s there at Wheelis, there was guys working at the base and they tried to pay locals to go buy young girls at the slave bazaar that were being kidnapped out of Europe, Northern Europe and up into Ukraine and brought down to Libya and sold in those slave bazaars. They tried to buy them back and then ship them back out to Europe. They got a few, they didn't get very many and they spent what little money they had extra trying to smuggle those girls out, and these were young girls, 6, 8, 10, 12 years old. Today, right now in Libya, the slave bazaars are open, little boys and little girls being sold in the slave bazaar. That's happening today. It's undeniable. Nobody can say it's not, and we have a piece of that. We have blood on our hands. We have slavery on our hands, and it goes to this prior administration and they need their asses kicked. They need a trip to Gitmo, and we got to go fix that shit.
2: That's a good, one. And you're tying a lot of the weather. yeah. I I know that there that's going on. I have like like you contacts and stuff like that. Um, people that I talk to, and it's uh, it's very frustrating. Uh, you know, Hillary foundation was, you know, trafficking children out of Haiti. Uh, they got they caught. The people that basically were blowing a whistle on them, they committed suicide. That kind of stuff was going on. So, you know, the, the Clinton uh, uh, body count is really way up there. Of course, the Clintons aren't doing that. The people that, you know, support them and, you know, run those operations, you know, do all that work, dirty work, but it's uh, it's pretty tragic. You know, let me just
1: add this. Thing. Look, we're going to be faced with, and this is where I really was starting with the conversation earlier, Mike. Um, we're going to win this battle. This election is really like hitting the beach at Normandy. Um, it's not the whole war. It's a critical battle and what's going to take place after it. Look, you can intuit what things have to happen. Um, When we secure the beach and start bringing in stuff, start taking people to get most, start clearing the decks of some of these criminals in high office and removing people that just uh, think wrong in high office and getting other people in there that actually have a brain in their head and and think American and uh, start getting our country set back on the straight path and, and away from the rocks, when that happens... We're going to be faced with um, a moment similar to what uh, Europe did, uh, literally Nuremberg-type trials taking place in the background, but also a reset to how the economy goes. This post-COVID environment is going to be like a post-World War II environment. we got to rethink our relationships out into the world and our relationships between each other here in the country. And there's an economic issue, there's a rebuilding Country issue. Uh, there's how are these agencies going to be run by who? How are the trains going to run on time when you don't have Nazis to run them? Um, so it's it's it, we had Yalta in this world reset the currency and the value of gold and all these other things. We're really going to have to have a post-COVID Yalta two of um, uh, coming together. Uh, conference it'll be more complex than it was even after World War II there's more players that we have to dial in and it's, it's a whole world uh, from a Trump centric mindset and there might be people that get annoyed that I would put it in those types of terms but look he's the guy that's in charge somebody has to make a decision somebody has to be the policy decision maker in this kind of a situation to get to a starting point it's like Eisenhower um, when he was the general in charge of all uh, the various allied forces somebody has to be the one to call the shots. Trump's going to be in that mode and uh, President Trump is going to have to call some shots and it's not going to be what everybody wants and there's not going to be universal acceptance but within your audience most of your audience has a military uh uh, bearing, uh, There's a certain esprit de corps that exists amongst your audience where they understand that at some certain point, we have to work together in order to get to the objective and coordinate our actions and close ranks where there's gaps to uh, achieve uh, some kind of occupation to re-own the world, to re-own our country first. We have to get things right here at home, and then we can go to the rest of the world. So in that kind of a mindset, there is going to be some type of a Yalta to type conference. I'm hoping to have some part in some of the planning uh, for that. Uh, we'll see who, you know, rises to the surface like the cream and gets to help own Reset for America so we can also go out and help the rest of the world and and do our part uh, in this. What I would say to your listeners, what I would say to you, when you're, God bless us, you know, hopefully is the case, when you're an old, old man and you have your children and grandchildren to bounce on your knee. And they ask you what it was like at this time in this post-COVID world. And they talk about the Great War to regain America, this great internal civil war, to displace these mobsters, these monsters that have taken control of our social media, our corporations, our military, our government, our function, our money. When they ask you what you did in the great war to rewind the world what are you going to say what is your part going to be when when general flynn talks about being a digital warrior are you holding ground can you make an intelligent um case for why we have to close ranks with the president why gitmo is required because the justice department is broken not forever but it's broken right now and we know that and we can see that your intuition tells you America's gone off the rails well it doesn't mean that we can't uh, you know get the train lifted off the rails get them reset and get the train working again we're not destroyed but we are messed up and the path forward this moment in time we're at this why in the road it's a heavenly path or a hellish path and I, for one, I'm going to stay straight on, on a heavenly path, God willing, God's help. You may not like President Trump because he's too assertive, aggressive, harsh, something. You don't like the New Yorker type of a presentment. Well, the reality is somebody that's just nice and calm and gentlemanly and everything else, that's what got us here. There's got to be a little piss and vinegar. You need the adrenaline going in your veins a little bit right now. We're in serious deep shit here. If you're in a firefight and somebody says, fuck and hell no, that's because lives are on the line and you're trying to move quickly and you want the adrenaline flowing and you're not sitting there. Would you straighten up uh, your blouse, your shirt isn't tucked in correctly? Um, Could you make sure that your shoe is, is, it's got a scuff mark on the side of it. Give me a fucking break. Get your head out of your fucking ass and get in the fight. The enemy is that way. Lead down range is going to keep people alive and keep the enemy pinned down. Get your head in the fight. What did you do in the Great War to save the world? Right now, in 2020, today.
2: That's that's a beautiful, one. You know, and I know that we talked about you know how um, we have these um, high-ranking you know military uh, veterans that have. Uh, influenced both of us and have uh, helped, uh, you know, hold the line on a lot of the stuff because a lot of the civilian agencies have been, you know, overrun. So, not everyone in the military has been good, as you know, you talked about with Obama appointing, you know, some people that were, you know, not really good. Uh, that's been uh, exposed. A lot of them have been taken down and moved out and the right people put in. So, I think as we move forward, that foundation. Uh, at least we had some kind of foundation here on earth <laughs> you know that foundation we, we can be thankful for and, and you know amazing that as we move forward and, and it's absolutely you're absolutely right you know Trump is going to be uh present in the future that we we're going to have that and those people that are still uh, disillusioned by different methods are going to wake up to a certain extent some people will never never wake up but uh the, the majority of people are going to wake up to the fact that We've really been uh, manipulated negatively for a long time. You know, the one thing, uh, Michael, that uh, I think is really important, a lot of people
1: have this attitude that uh, you can't beat City Hall. Um, I, I talk with really uh, people that are s- smart guys Uh, that have been in this game for a long time. I'm thinking of one particular person right now that everybody in this audience would know the name instantly. And uh, uh, we actually have a dinner bet whether or not Biden's going to win. And this is a conservative guy, Uh, been on the conservative team for a long time, but he's listening to the media. He's listening to the players saying no Biden's got it he's going to win there's no doubt about it there's nothing you can do to stop it and this is not a lightweight this is a real serious heavy duty player but he says you know they've been at this for a long time they've they've got us Uh, the media stuff is clear and and Biden's going to win and so you know start planning accordingly and he's telling the people around him that's the case um I absolutely, totally, with every fiber of my body, disagree with that. I've been waiting for this day, fighting for this day my entire life. We are at this pinnacle hinge moment, big doors turn on tiny hinges. We are at this hinge moment in history to reown our destiny as a people and to by God in heaven's mercy recapture our country from these horrible monsters that are doing incredible evil in our name um, we can't lose that moment we can't afford to not show up at the fight at the critical second and if by some horrible twist of fate we didn't win this I would at least want to be counted as having been on the right side at the right moment of uh, with Not necessarily history as my judge, but God is my judge. Um, If we're that far gone that we can't win this war with everything we know right now, if we can't rally the, the people and the troops to show up in the right way, then that's our problem. We were too late to wake up or to do what had to be done. But I don't believe that's the case. I believe that with your audience and other audiences like it, intelligent, informed becoming more intelligent, more informed, articulating the case correctly, and not being talked down, not being pushed back, holding their ground in the right way, Um, that just simple conversations, no foaming at the mouth, be articulate. That's why I wrote the book that I wrote for right this moment, and not really just for the election, although it's about the election and the next election after this, Um, It's about this mindset in the period even after this election. How do we have the conversation with our relatives, friends, neighbors, and do it in such a way that they think again about what's been going on here? A lot of people are going to be embarrassed to go hide somewhere that have been backing this other team. I don't want to embarrass them to death. They were under an illusion. They were, you know, MK Oldford is a society. We've been getting hit from from every angle with these wrong thoughts, these wrong ways of thinking. That's this uh, propaganda. And they got propagandized. I, I don't hold it against them. The, the, the force was pretty strong on the negative side. The one thing is, though, the other side is almost working from a computerized mentality. They have artificial intelligence that's trying to coordinate their actions and to shut down our communications to go against this in the social networking if you say this one word or that one word or if you're tied into this group or that group then they shut you down because they've seen that but what an artificial intelligence can't do is think with a heart and a soul and your audience has a heart your audience has a soul your audience has a mind that's beyond any computer and group of computers on the planet We can think outside the box. We can think in ways that even the computers can't fully anticipate. And beyond that, there's a divine moment. We are in this window to do good, to do right. And we have all of heaven on our side because we're on the right side. Act like it. Stop talking like the other guys are going to defeat us and doing some self-fulfilling prophecy about how this is going to go. The reality is we're winning. We're going to continue to win. We're going to kick them in the ass everywhere we find them. We're going to send a bunch of them to Gitmo, and some of them are going to self-terminate and find themselves before their creator explaining themselves, and we won't have to worry about it. But one way or another, we're going to take the speech. We're going to take this war to them and re-own our
2: country and stop the fucking bullshit. That's a beautiful one. and it's you know you validated all the stuff that I've been uh, you know trying to share and you know teach all, all the people that are following me right now. So um, thanks a lot for coming in, and uh, it's it's been a, a amazing you know having you talk. I, I get like I said it could be if, if I had all my buddies with me right now we'd be at your feet like just listening. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be great. So uh, thank, well, for let sharing. me just add
1: this just one quick thing, and let me just right. be clear about it. I I'm really kind of a message in a bottle. There's other people that I had the benefit of getting to be around uh, from a very early age that understood some of this stuff. Um, I can't really own it except that I had the value of real guys that helped me to understand what the fight was about, where it was at, and point me in the right direction. And uh, um, my hats off to those guys, most of them are gone at this point in time. And uh, I know you know guys that are like that, too. They don't get to be here for this exact second in the fight, but they are here because we're that message in the bottle. And that message in the bottle is these slime balls are about to get their asses handed to them on a the plate, and we're the ones that are going to deliver the message. Big time. Yep. Thanks, Mike. Right. Thanks so much. Thanks to the audience. Uh, Thank you go get the book and help us out. Uh, none of that money, by the way, goes to me. That money is going into a charity related to this, uh, rebuild reset that we're doing, uh, uh in the country. And, uh, we'll talk about that at a later time, but I'm not taking the money for me to do anything. So, uh, the book is, it would, it would be, um, to try and profit off of doing something when we're trying to save the country would be, uh, uh, some kind of horrible thing to me so I, I I want this for the country and that money from that goes to uh,
2: try to get this reset uh, going that we have to do Great. Can you mention that book one more time for the audience? Thanks uh, Kid by the Side of the Road.
1: We all grew up in the shadow of these events and we were yeah, all I'll yeah. so I, I want people to get a chance to think of yourself because we're all that same kid we're all the same one. that grew up in the shadow of these events and uh, uh, i hope that that'll end up it's actually reads like a magazine and it may end up on your coffee table or something like that through the holidays etc uh, you know hopefully other people will get chances to see it and learn from it and we'll help our friends and neighbors to think again get in the fight join us and let's get our country back
2: Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Juan, and we'll uh, we'll stay in touch. And uh, it's an honor and a pleasure, you know, speaking with you. Thanks for coming in and, and speaking with my audience. They're gonna they're gonna it's gonna go far. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Mike. All right. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.
0: Okay. So that was a pretty powerful. Um speech and information in reference to all around the world what's going on with the kids parents are being shot and the kids are being hauled off to different places all over the world thanks for watching